Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to our part two conversation with Simon Burke. Simon Burke dislikes waiting in the wings. His immense passion and energy would see him ideally leave the dressing room to arrive immediately on stage and into the job of storytelling. It is a routine that can easily be applied to Simon off the stage. He moves with great enthusiasm towards each project and is eager to craft his own projects too, or to provide support to colleagues and industry in advocacy roles. A vast array of performances in musical theatre have given us his Marius in the original Australian company of Les Miserables, Billy Flynn in Chicago and Billy Crocker in Anything Goes. Acclaim Abroad has seen Burke feature regularly in the West End in productions of La Cage Folle, A Little Night Music, The Phantom of the Opera and The Sound of Music at the London Palladium. Life as a jobbing actor has also seen him attend to the role of National President of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, a role he served for 10 years working for better conditions and consideration of fellow artists. It continues to be a rewarding and busy time on stage and off for Simon Burke. He has traversed many stages and shares fascinating insight and reflection on a career that has seen him journey from talented child actor to an accomplished and regarded actor and personality in theatre and on the screen. Well, Billy Crocker in Anything Goes is stylistically very different to yeah. Marius. That must, was that a challenge? Certainly would have been a lot of fun. It wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, I hadn't done, I don't think I'd even done an American comedy before on stage. Probably not. But, I mean, also, I literally started rehearsal while I was doing Les Mis of, of, uh, of Anything Goes. So, I mean, in terms of the emotional uh, commitment and the emotional uh, toll that that lame is had on on me because I mean I, I I could only do it if I really did it like if when she died she really died and when all my friends are dead I mean that was it was it was you know a kind of point of honor that I had to kind of just get there every night I probably would do it these days but you know but I without being a wanker but I just I just the show it meant if I felt it a lot and so to go into something which is all about sophistication and ease of comedy and and um, wit and fun and cheekiness and you know um, it was just I know I just I jumped right in there. We had a fantastic director from New York who was the resident um, who was directed out here called Philip Cusack, who cut his teeth on Neil Simon endless Neil Simon things and had the most brilliant uh, it was just great I mean he was just dry the driest sense of humour and and, and you, you had know. a land of gag I guess oh well, yeah Simon absolutely stuff, yeah. absolutely like um, that's where I started that's where I you know found out a little bit what we talked about before you know that, that landing a gag back with Robin Nevin in when I was 12 you know there's sort of 80 of them in that show and um Doing that for two years because Billy has a lot of gags, um, and and um, with farcical elements as well, you know, yeah. like mistaken identities, mistaken and, identities. Um, I mean, terrible, all those doors kind of, opening and closing. Yeah. I also that's where I learned my my relationship of ten years broke up during that show. 
and it wasn't my choosing. And my God, that's where you learn, literally. And 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 um, Geraldine, who I played opposite Geraldine Turner, was was having some tough times as well. And <laughs> because it was all opening, closing doors, we would, you'd literally be kind of back, like literally behind a door with your whole life ruined and you just walk on stage you have to open the door and you're there and I learnt that taught me so much I, th- that, I think more than any show that taught me uh, stamina and uh, how to f- fake it really really well it's amazing and a bit of doctor theatre I suppose that's sort of yeah I mean I it, 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 <laughs> I don't know if it is Dr. Theatre because you still come off feeling terrible. But you, it, it's Even a, though your favourite uncle died at dawn, you're broken hearted, <laughs> but you go on. Yeah. 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 Hey, wait a minute. Your words poetic and not pathetic. On the other hand, babe, you shine. And I can feel after every line a thrill divine down my spine. Now, gifted humans like Vincent humans might think that your song is bad. But I got a notion, I'll second the motion, and this is what I'm going to ask. You're the top. You're Mahatma Gandhi. You're the top. You're Napoleon Brandy. You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain. You're the National Gallery. You're Garbo Salary. You're Cellophane. You're sublime, you're a turkey dinner, you're the time of the derby winner. I'm a toy balloon that's faded soon to pop, but a baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. Billy, I think to differ with what you. What do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar, you're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. You're the nimble tread of the feet of Fred Astaire. You're a no-nail drama. You're Whistler's mama. You're a camembert. You're a rose. You're Inferno's dante. You're the nose. I'm the great Durante. I'm just in the way, as the French would say, to try. So London, is, is that looming now? No, well, after Anything Goes, you know, that first time you went over, you, you had a sort of a calling card, I guess, with having done Les Mis and Yeah. Um, do, is it because you want to prove yourself in another look, precinct? I, I, I'm pretty sure the reason I went to London the first time is um, my agent and many people's agent, Bill Shanahan, died tragically and, and way too young. And that had a seismic effect on me. And I, I, I just turned 30. And I um, I just suddenly thought, look, I've been in the public eye since I was 13. You know, everyone knows what I do. You know, I'm sort of, I was probably more well-known to the public than I am now. And there wouldn't be a show that I would do or an audition that I go to where I wouldn't have had dinner with that person's girlfriend four nights ago. And I was very comfortable. I, I look, I was really lucky. I, I earned really good money um, in my twenties, and so I was comfortable. And I had my pick of roles. I had a 
I just suddenly thought when Bill and I just thought it's just interesting to be somewhere where I don't know anyone and no one knows me and to sort of prove myself to find out if I'm any good so yes I had the calling card of having worked for Cameron Macintosh and having done you know but that kind of stuff really in the West End it's not that interesting to them uh, so yeah, I went there in March 92 and stayed until the end until 97 and had a great time and a terrible time and a wonderful time and, and learned I learned that was more of a personal journey I mean yes I, I did some great roles but um, it was full on is it um I suppose it would be challenging just breaking into that scene. I mean, how do you procure, procure an agent? And All I had was an agent because um, my management here had a connection with um, ICM in, in uh, London. And so I went over and did a recce about two months before and signed with them. So look, and that's a big thing to to, to, ha- to have a good agent. You know, I wasn't going over absolutely sight unseen, but I went over with no money and you know, and no calling card and whatever. And the day I arrived, um, I got off the plane. My agent said, um, "Oh, how are you feeling? You're a bit jet lagged." Um, um, look, there's something um, a show called. Uh, there's a casting for Cabaret for Cliff in Cabaret. And they can't see you till five o'clock. It's a Friday. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. So I just sort of, can't I just stay on someone's couch? And I went in and I met Roger Haynes, who was the director, and Wendy Spawn, who's the casting director, who ended up being the casting director of The National. Um, and she was up at, she was Sheffield, Crucible Theatre Sheffield. Funny, it's where Jamie's set. And um, I went and sang and I read, and they said, great, thanks very much. And I walked out. And I was walking down the stairs and she ran after me and she said, look, we'd really like to offer you the role. Um, it's six o'clock now, so oh, I can't call your agent, but rehearsals start on Monday. So if I give you some money now um, to buy the ticket up there, we can sort things out on. So I left the next <laughs> day. And found, so my first, I literally got my first job. I mean, it wasn't all like that, but that was just, and like, you know, Andy Circus. The great Andy Circus was the MC. He was, he was probably my age, and um, it was his first kind of musical, and um, he'd never done any film or TV before, and like that, that, that's the sort of, you know, it's weird kind of six degrees of separation there. Wow. And look, you're not, you're not being a, a spear carrier necessarily either. You're playing Raoul in Fan of the Opera. You're doing yeah. Carl Magnus at the National Theatre, so... Yeah. You know, all the stuff I did was... Uh, yeah, I did a play at the Almeida. I did the sort of European premiere of Jeffrey that play right um yeah lots of uh, and i got to play the title role of leonardo oh in that famous musical in the one of the most dreadful shows oh i did two dreadful shows one was leonardo (laughs) portrait of love about um which was based on the premise that leonardo da vinci was a raging heterosexual and that mona lisa he was in love with it was a piece of shit and I did that at Oxford, at the fire station at Oxford, and then it was going to the West End. And I was set to go to the West End with it, which was very exciting. And then I got 
Rao in Phantom and I just <laughs> dropped it like a hot potato. And the other thing I did, the most famous um, bad musical I've done is I was um, with my with my colouring, of course, my blonde hair and blue eyes at the time, I was cast as the evil Japanese um, commandant in the musical Out of the Blue, which was about um, the bombing of Nagasaki. Cheery little... Great premise for a musical. Great premise, which we, um, yeah, we... It's something that um, Bielish Dock and Bloom would produce. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. It was it, and it was... <laughs> I was still remember one, one, one was... One of the lines was early morning at the market shopping and the bombs are dropping. <laughs> I was joking. It was... Oh, no, that was bad. Yeah, no, but that was... Um... London was great. Phantom was great. I loved doing that show. Do you recall that windy little beach we walked along That afternoon in fall That afternoon we met a fellow with a concertina sang What was the song? It's strange what we recall And odd what we forget I heard love da -da -da, da -da -da, As we walked on the sand I heard love da -da -da, I believe it was early September Through the crash of the waves I could tell that the words were romantic Something about sharing Something about always Though the years race along I still think of our song on the sand and I still try and search for the words I can barely remember Though the time tumbles by, there is one thing that I am forever certain of I hear And I'm young and in um, in Lacage, not the first time, but the second time back, you did Lacage Fall at the uh, the chocolate menu factory. Yeah, menu I did it. I, I did it in the West End because um, it moved fairly quickly. Oh, it started there. Didn't it started it? there, and then with Douglas Hodge and, and uh, whoever, and then it came into the West End, and then it just sat there for a couple of years. And what they would do is they would keep the on well the the whole cast, and then they would do a sort of six month turnaround of the the two leads, and I was. Very lucky enough to be cast with John Barrowman doing that. That's cool. He played Georges, of course. Georges. Yeah, the, the father, the father of Jean-Michel. Yeah. Uh, You've played Captain Von Trapp, who was the father of Seven. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins, who was the father of Jane and Michael. Tommy Murphy's Strangers in Between, but he was not a father, but he was certainly a father figure, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, Catch Me If You Can, most recently, where yeah. you played Frank Senior, another father. And now you're playing Hugo, which, though a mentor, is very much a father figure. Yeah. Lots of father roles come your way, obviously Absolutely. because you've come into a certain demographic, yeah, sure, age sure, demographic sure. now. But um... no, that's uh, I've been thinking about that a lot myself recently. And um, what would you have liked to have been a father? 
I did want to be a father. Well, I was sure I would be a father in my 30s and some of my 40s. But um, no, I, I don't have any regrets about not being an, a biological father anymore. Um, I think that from the time my from the time my nieces were born, I, I was very involved with them for a, a few years. I mean, all their lives, but I mean, in their early years, I was very. I lived very close to them, and I was that. And then, uh, I guess, play school filled a bit of that gap. Um, not so much at the time, but once you realise, you know, over the last thirty years, the presence that you've had in the early development of millions. I guess a couple of million kids is and very particularly in the last three or four years well really since Sound of Music actually so about ten years just feeling a great um, or having a great ability to help and mentor and kind of advise younger performers is is it's a great gift you know because you can i've been doing a little bit at night recently the last couple of years and and i guess i'm the unofficial mentor to you know scores of people and i love that people ring me up out of the blue whom i know and just say you know want some advice or whatever so i do i mean i, I feel like that role is is filled and also playing fathers is um it's a very good way of working through your issues with your father <laughs> when you think about it. Like um Did you have a good relationship with your dad? I ended up having a good relationship with my dad. Right. Not 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 in my childhood at all. Um when I came back from the UK the first time after I did uh night music in ninety six, I came back because my dad was diagnosed with cancer and only had a few months to live and so I just I had been offered a year at the National by Trevor Nunn doing all these plays and I decided to stay here and just sort of see him out and he he uh, he was around for three or four years after that so I ended up staying in Australia and we're and you know we ended up having a really good relationship but um yeah so when you play a dad you sort of it's interesting how you connect with the bits of your dad that were good and the bits of dad your dad that weren't so good and that, that were failings and you kind of you can work through them it's really it's, it's it's a it's a real gift i mean that's one of the you know and again an unintended consequence of what we do i think Do you have a, an opening night ritual when you're in a show? 
Are you superstitious in the theatre? Um, I don't like to go on stage unless I have a shower, a really hot shower before I get dressed. Like I, I might go and warm up, um, you know, do the company warm up, whatever, you know, gossip and talk bullshit for a long time. And then I like to jump in the shower and just like, I don't know, sort of like become neutral or something. So I'm a little superstitious, I think. I mean, I would never, you know. Whistle in the dressing room or? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a whistler. whistler. I'm, I'm, yep, well, right. I, and I know that's bad, but um, I, I would never do the Scottish play or. Um... So if someone offered you the lead in the Scottish play, yeah. you'd knock it back? Oh no! You're allowed oh, to. You're, you're, you're allowed to. You're allowed to um, be in it, just not talk about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I say re- I have a my backstage ritual is oh I'll tell you one thing I mean it's not an opening night ritual but especially in a musical long running musical I cannot stand to be in the wings I cannot I cannot stand it I'm either in my dressing room or on stage. And so in a, well, even in a short run of a show, I will, and I don't like to prepare. I hate preparing. If I could come in at the five minute call every night, get in my co- have a shower, get in my costume, and go on stage. And so I don't, um, I don't. Preparing as in warm ups and. Uh, or even getting into carriage and that shit. Right. I mean, yeah. that's just not me. Yeah. It is some people, but um, if I'm, if I've done my work in rehearsal and if, if my, Look, that's not true. If my performance is 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 in a place where it's ready, where it's where it's where it's elastic and it's ready to to be malleable by the audience or by the other actors or by me, then I like not to think about it. I like to just, I like to. I can be on the phone. I'm mean, so unprofessional. I'll be on the phone gossiping to someone. I can hear my cue coming up. I'll hang up. I'll put the phone down. Walk on stage. I'm in the and I just love it. I love that. Yeah, that's because you just. It's like a get, gift. It's like being smacked in the face, and so. That for me gives me the inspiration to be different and the same every night. Um, Three, and, two, one, back in the room. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly right. And um, my other ritual is I, I, I just have to have fun. I mean, I'm, I just, I will always gravitate to the the worst, the naughtiest, naughtiest person. person. <laughs> That's why Helen Dallimore and I, who's my, Helen is probably my best friend, and she and I have been casting Jamie, and it is going to be an absolute train wreck. God help those other actors. It's a total disaster. Not on stage. I'm yeah. very, I'm very good on stage. I don't like mucking around on stage. I used to. I get very cross with that now, and I can't stand people walking through shit or being off. <laughs> but backstage, oh, you know, there's always like you know, in Mary Shirt it was Faisal Bazzi, you know, in. In Cash with Cat, it was bloody Cameron Mitchell who was directing it. But I mean, like, there's the, the I will always gravitate to the worst, most badly behaved person. <laughs> Do you have a, a go to song for auditions? Or used to maybe when you were starting out? I mean, obviously now it's sort of yeah. you choose something which is stylistically appropriate. Exactly. Weirdly enough, the song that got me Les Mis, which is my first musical, was um, I took Max Lambert in to play My Foolish Heart for me. Which was like could not be <laughs> could not be less appropriate for Les Mis. Then yeah, Max Lambert playing it was like you know it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever heard, and he he kind of worked out a beautiful arrangement with me, and I and I sang it, and that was Trevor Nunn was just sat there and he went, yes yes, uh, I feel like I'm in a little 
cabaret bar now. I thought, oh, that's not, it's hardly empty chairs, empty tables. But uh, anyway, got me there all. So. Got you there, got yeah. you there. What about reviews? Do you read them? Yes. Yeah? I don't believe Correct. any fucking actor that's... Uh, I absolute, in fact, I will judge someone as not being an honest person if they say they don't read reviews. I just don't believe it. And I think someone... I mean, there might be... Well, put it this way. I think 95% of people who say they don't read reviews read them. And I find it disingenuous and it really annoys me. Do you take notice of them? No. No. Oh! You just read them for the entertainment value. Look, and that's not true. I mean, (laughs) in fact, I remember when I... I do read them because when the reviews for Anything Goes came out, they were not good for me, generally, generally. Well, some, or they, it seems like they weren't at the time because I remember, I remember maybe the most diva thing I've ever done is, um, <laughs> God, what was I thinking? I was, I'm in 25 or 26 or something, and I walked in and the stage manager had dutifully put up all the reviews on the company in her sport. And I was so angry. <laughs> I just ripped them all down. I ripped every single review down. I said, what are you fucking putting those up there for? And I threw them in the bin. Um, so yes, they obviously did use to affect me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, of course, I, I, I just don't think it's human nature not to see what, what people think about you. And especially in this age of social media, I think it's easier to, to be honest about it when they don't really affect me. I mean, if I get a bad review, I generally agree with it. Get a good review, I always agree with it. <laughs> a friend of mine who's just produced a play um, for independent theatre said a really great thing. He, he said, oh, you know, I, I, I was doing the show and I wasn't sure that it was so good. I thought, you know, we might get, you know, three stars if we're lucky. And he said, and I keep seeing these bloody reviews for shows that get four or five stars and they're only worth three. He said, and then we got four or five stars. And I said, well, that's probably because it's only worth three. <laughs> you've, as we've, as we've discussed, you've worked with many famous folk uh, in your career. Tell me, uh, what's Big Ted really like? Oh. Oh, Big Ted, Big Ted. It's like you've had, uh, you're not doing it anymore, are you, play school? But it was a two-decade run. 25 years. 25 years doing play school, yeah. Um, Which is amazing, really. It's, uh, I think, one of the longest ever. Most people don't quite realise that if you do play school, the most you'd ever do would be 30 or 40 a year. And you can do that in three weeks. So all the times I was in London, I would used to time my trips home back to do two solid weeks of play school then you'd be in the system so I mean, you know, all up I might have done 400 episodes but that's not a lot of time but in terms of what it teaches taught me about being myself and being comfortable with A with a camera looking to a camera hosting hosting being naughty being um, inventive being making the best of something when something goes wrong. Because when we, when I used to do it, it was shot as live. So you wouldn't stop them in every single wow. section. They used, then they moved to section, then they moved to every segment. So now they will just, 
you know, do a song and then they'll redo it if, it, if, if there was a mic and shot or something. Whereas before, we would start and shoot it as live. And that was just the best training. Yeah. Did you have a favourite toy co-star? Um, I liked Morris. Morris is gay. Is he? Um, yeah. Should you be outing him here? Well, you know, it's 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 the nineties. It's the nineties. Right. <laughs> it was the nineties. Um, uh, no, I think my favourite was I love Scrap, and I I did like Big Ted. Big Ted and I got on pretty well. Humpty was good. I like look. I love. I, be, I believe you did a, a, a cabaret show at Kinsella's with Humpty. Yes. And covered him in red wine. <laughs> do you so, know? So he looked like he took him back to the studio, no. and he looked like he was covered in measles. No, it's worse than that. Um, it was actually at the Queen Bee and School of Arts, run by Bill Stevens. When I took my cab ride out of there, and um, Humpty was in Humpty and Jemima and Big Ted. The ABC let me have them, and these are toys that are older than me. He was in the in the boot, and there was a bit of grease that got on Humpty's, um, you know, the egg shell, egg shell <laughs> on his shell. And so I thought, fuck, I can't. Um, I've got to do something like this. I better, you know. So I thought I'll soak him. And so I put Humpty into. <laughs> I mean, what was you hadn't done much laundry, <laughs> no. had you? No. I put Humpty in um, the laundry tub, and what I didn't realise, of course, Humpty Humpty was um, stuffed with red. That's Craypock, was it? Yeah, yeah. Did you used to be called Craypock? Yeah. And so, as I put it in, suddenly this eggshell, all this red kind of dye started coming through it, and I thought, oh my God, I'm actually, I'm actually I am killing Humpty. Killing an icon. This is like, you know, <laughs> this is like drowning Bert Newton. I mean, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't get a worse thing. And Henrietta Clark, who was the executive producer who had done it from dot one, um, Apparently, I came and I brought the Humpty back, and I was in—I was in tears. I felt so bad about it. And she—he—I think they kept him. They—I they, mean, they, look, there were a couple of stunt Humpties, um, but I think they kept him on in the office with his measles um, as a permanent reminder of don't lend the toy stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> She wouldn't, therefore they didn't So then it wasn't, not unless it could she She doesn't, God no she needn't Therefore it's not He'd never, therefore they haven't Which makes the question absolutely could she She daren't, therefore I mustn't What utter rot Fidelity is more than mere display It's what a man expects from life Fidelity like mine to Desiree and Charlotte, my devoted wife. You served 10 years as national president of Actors Equity, mm-hmm. Mia. That's a huge role whilst managing your career at the same time. Mm. It's also a very generous position to, uh, to be supporting your colleagues in Thank a position you. like that. It used to really... Um, I wasn't going to say bug, but it used to really disturbed me that um, most people, some very high profile actors even, um, just assumed that I was paid for that job, that it was a paid job. In in fact, it was an honorary position for 10 years. And I mean, that's fine. I I took it on. And when you take on a role like that, it's very much how long is a piece of string. 
some people have been have lent their name to it to just be you know kind of on the on the you know the letterhead some people have just gone straight I mean the role is what you make it and I had I like to do things properly so I I became fairly involved in it and it it was huge in terms of its it is it's like doing a full-time job while you're doing your own job full-time job so for for 10 years you know at I'd wake up every morning and usually speak with Simon Whip who was the sort of CEO of the who was the paid CEO thing and it was almost like you'd, you'd get a report of what's what's gone wrong overnight because you don't often hear the good news it's basically about what shows in trouble or what performer might have been sacked or what company was going bust or what import they wanted to bring in or what funding was about to be cut and um and then really say I'm, say I'm doing a rehearsing a play at breakfast I'd have chats and then on the way to work I'd, I'd be on the phone every coffee break every lunch break and after I'm just yeah it was full on but 10 was, years is a long time is that because you wanted to see certain things through that you perhaps started yeah I mean to... they're two year terms so I guess I did five two year terms and I think I remember saying this <laughs> sounds weird to say this but Malcolm Sinclair who was a great British performer who was president of British Equity about four years after I became president of ours um, and I said to him oh you know he said oh should I do it for a third term and I said oh your third term is the best <laughs> like the first when the first two years you kind of don't know what you're doing but you have a lot of um, you know you're learning the ropes the second you find an agenda you find um, my thing was about relevance of the of of the union to its members and to the industry and so you know some of the achievements I mean I, I managed to get our board which is about 32 people um, to make it very representative of the industry both geographically and in terms of gender in terms of different disciplines of you know voiceover artists and music theater people and I like to think that people I'm sorry so I was very instrumental encouraging a lot of people to run we didn't get the diversity thing right until i think the last couple of years and now i'm you know the great it's fantastic it's the most well we started the diversity committee but now the national performance committee which is like our board is is an extremely inclusive and diverse thing and that's after my time which i'm really pleased about i was always about not pragmatism so much but working with employers rather than against them and trying to work as an industry rather than I mean look at the end of the day there are going to be contracts between performers and employers and you know it might be 11% super and they want 9% you know but it's going to be 9 or 11 and so you fight those things but the, the most enjoyable and the most um, valuable endeavours are when you know, the producers and the performers go as an industry to Canberra and, you know, end up getting 40 million bucks for the ABC when there's been two hours of drama, you know, in the final 
final years of the Howard government or something. You know, like they're the really good achievements. And funnily enough, I think in my producing of Devil's Playground and the stuff I've done, I couldn't have done had I not had that um, experience in, I guess, running an organisation. For I guess you're a bit of a political animal as well. You enjoy the, the whole politics of... Yeah, I, I mean, I've always been very interested in politics. Very, very, very interested. As a nerd, I mean, when we were living in London, we'd go to... Peter and I would go to the gym and he'd be listening to Beyonce and I'd be listening to AM. <laughs> <laughs> Back in Sydney and somehow find it on... Yeah, like, I'm a nerd. But, um, you know, I enjoy um, lobbying for things I believe in, yeah. One of the things I enjoy about this podcast is that we can celebrate artists who have gone before, who are no longer with us, through a six degrees of separation. Mm. Now, I know with one degree of separation, uh, you were, were very great mates with a photographer which supported the industry for a many long time with, with headshots um, and, I'm and headaches. And headaches. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about um, the, uh, the infamous, the famous, uh, the glorious Stuart Campbell. Yeah. Um, he's been gone now for what is it, five or six years. No, it's ten years. Ten years. Yeah, uh, ten years at I think the twenty second or twenty third of December last <laughs> year. How did you meet Stuart? Oh God, I met Stuart Campbell. I think it must have been fifteen or sixteen or something. I was at a. I mean, that was the nice thing about... Look, if things were different in those days. Um, the, the, the fun thing about being a, a child performer in those days, I guess you got to hang out with the, with the actors more. Um, and, like, I totally get that, you know, I mean, chaperoning and, and, and you know, everything is much, much, much more um, regimented and absolutely rightly so. But back in those sort of 70s, 80s, you just, you know, you hung with the... With the actors and mucked about and had fun and you know so i went to a, i went to a few parties shall we say and i went to a party when i was 15 or 16 and there was a Stuart campbell and he was he was an actor uh from nida and i don't think he was necessarily a particularly wonderful actor he might have been all right but he was he had as you know the wickedest and most outrageous sense of humor and was just almost Tourette's would just say what's in his mind and he was devastated. What do you want? What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> For example, you know the great Arturo Ui story, don't you? No. So people like Richard Warrett and John Bell and, and directors of the day would have Stuart in their productions. He did a lot of work at the Sydney Theatre Company. Richard Warrett absolutely adored him. Not because, in, in small roles, but just because he was just so much fun to have around. And he was in a production of Atua Ui at the Seymour Centre that Richard had directed. And um, it was a very large cast. And um, there's that great long speech of Ui's at the end. And then he, you know, he talks about but I shall never forget the, never forget the bitch who bore me. And um, as all the cast kind of, you know, surrounded John Bell, all 20 of them, and the, the pin spot comes down. And it was one night apparently when all the cast is coming in on, on John Bell and there's a full house or whatever and the pin spot's getting closer and closer and tighter and tighter on John Bell. And he says, I shall never forget the bitch who bore me. 
And Stuart said, oh, you're that bitch who bores me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, John Bell, um, to talk it very... I mean, apparently the whole cast just like just went berserk and John Bell came back and said, well, that's very funny, Stuart. You better not do it again, but it was funny. So he had that kind of... Well, that that, that wicked Tourette's sense of humour. I mean, there's the Cyrano story too. Oh, yes. Yes, no, you can go ahead. (laughs) Well, it's attributed to Stuart, but I, I, I believe that it wasn't him who said it. But I guess the, the, the mere fact, there was an actor in the show who was, I think, very good looking and, and was um, in the show, perhaps not necessarily for the right reasons of his being a terribly talented actor. And he had one line in where all the, all the, um, the soldiers were looking out, out front and the guy had a line saying... I see a man running away. And he went, I see a man running away. And apparently on opening night, Stuart said, yeah, it's your agent. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. Is it the, the late 90s, early 2000s or whatever, there was an art, art exhibition that you, what? Oh, you've got. I own oh, goodness. Puss Christ. <laughs> so Piss Christ was, it was Juan de Villa, wasn't it? And it was a very, very famous piece, piece of, 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 of modern art, which was a crucifix in a perspex case of urine, I mm. think. And it was called Piss Christ. And it was actually banned. Or, you know, and then Stuart, you know, uh, as you said, became a very... Um, he started moonlighting from acting as a photographer because he was a bloody good photographer. And then that became his profession. And he was an incredible photographer he's Mm. the National Portrait Gallery have about 10 of his photographs now Stuart (laughs) was having an exhibition in Newtown I think wasn't it somewhere like that and one of the photos that was at this exhibition was of my kitten VB oh you owned the the cat VB was my kitten and he had somehow, I mean, it was shot from above, so the cat, cat was just basically lying on the floor and he put a cross behind the cat. And the cat just had just magically put its little paws out. And so when you turned it right side up, it looked like a, a little kitten being crucified and he called it Puss Christ. And it attracted a great deal of attention. In fact, at the opening night of the exhibition, the RSPCA turned Shut up, up yeah. um, wanting to know how the photo, whether any animals were harmed in the shooting of this great work of art. Anyway, Stuart died very, very tragically 10 years ago in his hometown of Ballarat. I was doing sound and music in Toronto at the time. Um, And I remember his great friend, Gillian Armstrong, ringing me about four days before he died and just saying, Stuart's desperately ill. I think he's had sort of some kind of lung collapse or something, and was near death. I remember talking to him, and I was by myself. I'd literally just joined the cast of the show. It was three days before Christmas, and I didn't know anyone. And I had this news out of the blue, and then about two days before Christmas, he he died. And poof. It's been hot, also very sweet And I'm not usually indiscreet But when he sparkles, 
the earth begins to sway. What more can I say? How can I express? How confused am I by our happiness? I can't eat breakfast. I cannot tie my shoe. What more can I do? If I say I love him, you might think my words come cheap. Let's just say I'm glad he's mine, away, asleep. It's been hard, also it's been swell, more than not. It's been more than words can tell. I halt, I stammer, I sing a rondelay. What more can I say? You've recently, um, not recently, I suppose a couple of years ago, you're recording. I'm talking about um, something about sharing, something, something always. about always. Yes, yes a reference to um, <coughs> yeah. La Cage de Folle. Song of the Sand. Have you many of your performances been captured in recordings? I know Anything Goes was. Ah, uh, yes, Anything Goes was yeah recorded. Um, the ill-fated um, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, where I was cast as Jekyll and Hyde. And that didn't go on, did it? No, we started rehearsals and then. Oh God, that was awful. That was in Melbourne. We started rehearsals at the Her Majesty's Theatre just before it reopened, and. Um, uh, at the end of the first week or second week my agent said to me look I'm sure everything's alright but we haven't received any money so just sort of keep your idea eyes open and then the next day they sent the entire cast home except for Delia Hannah and I Delia was playing the female lead and for the next week and a half the American director and Delia and I and Anthony Gabrielli the musical director would rehearse in the morning and in the afternoon we would do private backers auditions to try and get money for the show. So I remember you know, doing like three hours, of one hour or something, Daryl yeah, Summers and he wrote a check for the show and then next day someone else and they wrote. And um, we did this for about two weeks and then they basically fessed up and said we never had the money. Wow. Um, awful. That's God, frustrating a, and disappointing. and Oh, yeah. And I, I was... Uh, the greatest acts of kindness I've ever heard. Um, I was staying at Rockbench Regency. I had a beautiful two-bedroom apartment, which I was going to be there for a year. And um, my partner at the time had moved from Spain to be with me and was ensconced in this apartment. I was very, very pleased with myself. And um, so I'd been there for about seven weeks, six weeks. Suddenly they fessed up. No, we don't have any money. No, 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 no payout. No, nothing. No, just like all over. And then um, um, Rockman's Regency rang Shanahan's, my agent, and said, "Look, um, we just need to know. Just need to tell you that um, the bill hasn't been paid." And obviously they were putting me up there, and it was several thousand dollars. And the manager said, "Just to let you know that." course we're not asking for the money um, and just let Simon stay there as long as he needs to to get himself together like a couple of weeks you know before he goes back I mean that was 
Amazing. Yeah. So I did. I did. Because I'd rented my house out in Sydney. So I had nowhere to go. So basically, I was thinking that my 38th birthday, I spent, woke up on the floor of a friend's place and I thought, gee, showbiz. Ups and downs. Yep. Ups and downs. Um, we've been listening to uh, various selections from Something About Always through this uh, interview. Yeah. How, um, how do you select the repertoire for a, a recording? That was very much a collaboration with Daniel Edmonds, who's um, a great friend and a wonderful musician and co-produced the album with me. That album came about, he's an amazing guy. Uh, I was in London and uh, I'd literally just been cast that day as um, Georges and Akasha Fall with John Barrowman. And Daniel was assistant musical director on the last production of Chicago at the time in Brisbane. And he rang me. Had you? That, that's not the one. No. No, oh, no. You'd played Billy Flynn. In, I played Billy Flynn. There's been so many oh, Chicago. So. so many Billys, so little time. Yes. Um, no, this is, uh, no, I wasn't in it. So I, Daniel was in Brisbane doing it and I was in London. And I don't even know how he knew that I'd been cast, but he's such an industrious person. He rang me and said, so you're doing um, Georges in Lacage? I went, how did you know? He said, oh, yeah, I know everything. I said, that's great. He said, when do you start rehearsal? I said, oh, about, I think, six weeks. He said, well, we can finally do the album that we've talked about. I said, yeah, but I'm here and you're there. He said, oh, it's a half-hour call. Um, I'm just going to make a few calls and I'll ring you at interval. And by interval, he'd arranged, he'd booked James Morrison's studio at Wood. He'd asked Caroline O'Connor to do a duo with me. He'd booked Barry. Caroline's partner to play on it and two others and he and he'd already started arranging during the show like and a number and and so he said get on he said all you have to do is get on a plane and we'll do it next week and so I got on a plane came back here for a week recorded the album Peter my partner you know designed the artwork because John Barrowman is such a big deal in 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 the uk he had a lot of mer- he had like a whole wall of merchandise of john barrowman t-shirts and tea towels and five albums and mugs and so they let me um put my album there and because i mean john's got a huge following i mean i just it just sold so well and um and we can still get it on itunes yeah, yeah which is nice right. yeah. yeah so that was lovely um, you were made an officer of the Order of Australia in 2015 for distinguished service to the performing arts as an actor, singer and producer and through senior advocacy roles for performers' rights and access to professional development and education programs. That's the cherry on the top of a, a very rich and accomplished career. Is there anything else you'd like to do? <laughs> I mean, have you thought about directing or...? Look, I've directed a couple of things and I, I, I didn't think that it was for me, but I, I love being able to get things out of performers and I think I'm okay at that. I didn't realise that uh, producing would be as creative as it was when I did the Devil's Playground thing and I, have a faci- I think I have a facility for thinking outside the square and get, bringing people to get, getting people together. I think I'm quite good at that. So... Um, I'd like to do more of that. The only thing about coming up with another project or not coming up, about committing to another producing project is that Devil's Playground was so uh, so personal and so lucky. Like everything went right, you know. 
we thought we're not going to get Tony Collette. We've got Tony Collette. We're not going to get Jack Thompson. We're going to get Jack. We're not, you know, it's not going to. They're not going to. You know, we're not going to win the actor and that Logan. We it just it just went so well that um. Uh, do I want to do anything else? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I just want to. Um, funnily enough, I'm actually enjoying performing more than ever. More, more than, than ever, and in surprising things like Strangers in Between or Catch Me If You Can. Things that sort of came out of the blue, um, roles that aren't necessarily me. I guess Jamie to a certain extent. Mary Stewart, STC last year. Like, I'll tell you what I feel. I feel very useful. You get to a certain age where, and also having been a producer or, or the equity thing, you know, as an actor, we're, our whole lives are subjective, both our characters from a character point of view and from a career point of view. You always have to think about yourself. But when you have other roles and you're thinking about the whole project or about the whole of the industry or the whole of the acting community, then I'm not saying you're selfless. Of course, we all have an ego, but you, I know very much now in a production where I fit and I don't need to be more or less than that. I just need to make, like Mary Stewart was a classic example of a meeting of Lee Lewis, Kate Mulvaney, the writer, Caroline Brazier and... Helen Thompson, four incredible women, and around them were these eight men, and each of us had a very significant but much less important role to play. And so just slotting yourself in there and then slotting out is, I find that really satisfying now. And like, you know, when you play a lead role, you play a lead role, but I really like working with young directors at the moment. I find, you know, not necessarily young directors, but directors who are at the beginning of their career because I feel like you can really, they can just tap into you and just go do that, you know. I find that really exciting at the moment. Fantastic. Mm. Thanks for uh, for talking today. I've, I've had a great time. Me too, Pete. Um, all the best for everybody's talking about Jamie, which yes. I think kicks off in August, isn't it? Uh, you're a start rehearse end of June, so we're end of July we start previewing, I think, yeah. Starting yeah. at the Opera House and then around Australia and New Zealand. More of Mr. Simon Burke. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. And there you go. That was my two-part conversation with the mischievous and marvellous Mr. Simon Burke. You can catch Simon later in the year with a wonderful cast in the Australian premiere of Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Uh, Let's hope that that uh, is a reality, considering all things in the world at the moment, but uh, we have to remain positive, don't we? You've always listening, also been listening to uh, various excerpts from Simon's album, Something About Always, which is available from iTunes and musical direction by Mr. Daniel Edmonds. Join me next time on Stages, where my guest is publicist Mr. Ian Phipps. He'll be telling us all about the marketing and promotion of events and shows um, and giving us terrific insight into that essential task in the arts industry. As always, you've been listening to Stages. I'm Peter Ayers. Take care, keep well, and see you next time.